0: historians can play a lot of roles in different areas. Um, but just for me, it's about being involved in that truth-telling process that has been kind of been being called for, for years and years and years. It's not new, but there's, so, there's such a long way to go. I mean, I, I always think, and this is what got me into writing about this in the first place, it was really Henry Reynolds wrote these amazing books about frontier wars and said we need i'm just scratching the surface we need to do these local studies
1: and we will find out more and more and more Hello everyone Dallas Rogers here and welcome back to the Festival of Urbanism and City Road podcast book club it's great to have you along and it's my great pleasure to be sharing the studio today with Stephen Gapps Stephen of course is the author of The Sydney Wars and he's got a brand new book out, which we're talking about today, Gadyara, The First Wiradjuri War of Resistance, The Bathurst War, 1822 to 1824. And I start by asking Stephen what the difference is between these two books. Let's get into the conversation. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the podcast to talk about your new book. And there's a quote on page 30 that I think gets us into this nicely. After years of conflict across the Cumberland Plain, the colonists knew the effects of concentrated firepower of over 30 muskets against warriors using traditional weapons, notably the Battle of Parramatta, 1797, and the Appen Massacre, 1816, where scores of Aboriginal people had been killed or wounded, and no colonists' lives lost. And then a little bit later you talk about maybe what's different about Bathurst compared to the Sydney Frontier Wars. And you say, the initial occupation of Wadjuri lands was never a great rush of so-called explorers, settlers, military and conflict workers and occupying vast flocks of sheep and cattle along the Cox's Road across the mountains. So you're saying there's something different to this war in Bathurst. Could you just give us the... Sort of potted history of what this book is about, and maybe how it's a little bit different to the Sydney Wars.
0: Mm-hmm, sure, I may, well, it, it it does flow on from the Sydney Wars, and and re- reading, uh, writing, and researching the Sydney Wars led me straight to the the Bathurst War, um, because there's a strong connection, and really that's that's where it begins, I suppose, when in 1816 Governor Macquarie is going out any detachments of troops to quell the uh, attacks, the raids, the the warfare around Sydney. But one of the points that he makes is to send a detachment to to cover the road across to the Blue Mountains because he's been there to Bathurst. He's established a settlement, a small settlement there, And he's realised how critical that is, those pasture lands around the western, central Western Plains, how critical they are to the colony. And he's got one thin, tiny road of communications across the Blue Mountains. So he sends a detachment to guard that crossing. And they're there for several years, um, based at Springwood at Blacksland um, and at um, the Cox's River on the other side of the mountains near Hartley. So that kind of led me to thinking, well, what happens, you know, what's the connection there? Um, Obviously, it's the pasture lands. There's this rich expanse of grasslands that is ripe for settlement. Macquarie limits that settlement, and so the book really starts with that that connection, and then the slow build-up of Macquarie's um, occupation of Bathurst from, you know, the first – I guess one of the things that also strikes me is that – our school history is the Blue Mountains were crossed in 1813 by three guys. Actually, they weren't. They were crossed well before that by escaped convicts, etc. But that's the history of the crossing of the Blue Mountains we know. Whereas Evans, the surveyor, crosses just after Blackson Wentworth and Lawson, and he really sends back the message. There are he sees, he explores, he goes through Wiradjuri country. He sees the grasslands. And that's where Macquarie comes and establishes a settlement. But I guess the next part of the, the book is trying to understand the people who the, whose lands is being invaded um, to get a sense of what is coming across the mountains to them. And I suppose um, it's like at first, it's not like in Sydney where it's not a trickle, it's, a, it's kind of a flood of colonists. It's not like in Sydney where... There's um, massive disease and, um, you know, um, uh, huge numbers of convict workers and, 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 and lots of soldiers. It's, it's a tiny settlement of just a couple of hundred people in a massive nation of, we don't know, five to 10,000 people and just on that northwest area, at least a couple of thousand people. So it's just a pinprick in that vast Wiradjuri country at first. But then, of course, things change. Uh, Governor Macquarie goes back. Governor Brisbane has come in with a mandate to to exploit this country west of the mountains, and he does so. eighteen twenty two opens the floodgates to settlement, and the pastoralists who are already there taking lands on the, you know sneakily, um, such as Lawson and, and Cox himself. But it opens up, and that's where the real conflict begins. and And you know, I guess it was partly people think, oh, but why, why did, um, why didn't they fight back when they first arrived? Because they were just a pinprick in the, in their nation, you know, um, because they actually brought in uh, useful things, uh, and it was probably curiosity as well. Who were these people? What's going on? So, um, so
1: basically, the colonists are kind of insignificant in the landscape at this point. At this
0: point, they are, yeah. But that rapidly changes when, and it's, and it's. I think another huge difference between Sydney and, and Bathurst is by, by the Sydney you've got very few stock, it, it's sheep and cattle, until it builds up and then they're busting to get elsewhere. But in Bathurst from 1822, you've got tens and tens and tens of thousands of sheep and cattle coming across or populating and, and, and repopulating the areas. And so you've got, it at first... You know, hundreds of stockmen, pastoralists, squatters coming through, but they're bringing thousands and thousands of sheep and cattle, and that's where the conflict begins. That's where suddenly this vast landscape, this 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 landscape managed for tens of thousands
1: of years, is rapidly changing, and people don't realise this: the colonisation by domesticated colonial animals and the Environmental impacts that this has, the way that this changes the landscape, the way that colonists might follow animal trails, that and so animals have a very key role to play in. They this.
0: do, and and it's not just the fact. and I think this is this is a common understanding that um, the sheep and cattle come in and destroy the creeks and rivers and, and the grasslands. That's not quite true, especially at first. Um, I think the the bigger the bigger conflict occurs when Aboriginal people. Understand that the sheep and cattle are coming in, and and they're not damaging the environment at first. It takes a few years for cattle to come through, and and often they're on they're moving around at this point anyway. They're on big pastoral runs, moving around looking for the right grazing lands. They might just keep following rivers. So in the first couple of years, definitely, I, I think. It's not about the environmental effect where people start, where Aboriginal people start to fight back. It's about the fact that they want a share of these sheep and cattle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Is> they just <laughs> they one, start, one it, or two, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Not, not many, or, or or 50 sheep out of a flock of 10,000. You know, that might feed us for six months. You know, what's wrong with that? You've got tens of
1: thousands of them. So you have Aboriginal people actually taking these sheep and cattle and eating them and incorporating them into their own kind of diets. Yeah. But
0: that's where the colonists can't deal with that fact. And because of their, of their, because they don't think Aboriginal lives matter, stock are worth more than Aboriginal lives. And that becomes the key element of conflict where, you know, Aboriginal people might take a sheep um, and a colonist comes and shoots, it, shoots them because he doesn't say, I'll call in the constable and arrest them. He just shoots them or they disperse them, you know? Um, so that's, that's really where I think that's when, the where, when that happens and, and you see it, uh, Windradine, he's a key player in the resistance, uh, major leader in the Northeast. He, some of his family members are massacred just near Bathurst in the middle of Bathurst Township. Tell us about that story. So it was called the Potato Field Incident. Um, I call it the Bathurst Massacre because that's pretty much what it was. Um, so apparently, Windjedine's family, and we've only got really got one historical source, um, but um, uh, Uncle Bill Allen tells a, a very similar story with, with some nuances. Um, but Windjedine's family were uh, taking some potatoes, or they one day they came to a potato field on the Kelso Flats, just on the Macquarie River there, and uh, were given some potatoes by one of the farmers, and then they came back the next day. And it seems as though, assumed that they could have another bunch of potatoes. And he said, no, you can't. I gave you some. And then went off and grabbed some settlers and came back and shot them. Um, we don't know how many, but, it, you know, at least five or six, I'd say. So that's the, that's the Bathus Massacre. Um, um, and that that really, it seems to be one of the, if not the final straw between Nine, who was a young... Man, Wiradjuri man at that point, um, deciding to fight back, Um, and he leads a he leads a series of attacks just after this and around to the north of Bathurst, and and kills Stockman to the point where you've got um, at one point there there's about twenty white people killed and at least seventy we don't know the real figures Aboriginal people killed and. Uh, in one attack, seven convict workers are dead and their bodies are piled into a cart and, bro- and trundled through the main street of Bathurst. And we don't, you know, we don't tend to, to visualise these, these moments uh, in Bathurst today or, or even consider that there was a massacre right next to the township and that co- dead white bodies in a cart were going through, trundling through
1: the township to be buried. One of the things I love about your writing is that you put us in the place very nicely. And in fact, this is a great thing about historical writing in general is, I guess, the aim of it in many ways is to put us there. And I remember from the Sydney Wars book, you talk about the sonic landscape, how the Colony would would have sounded like, and you talk about black gunpowder and how loud black gunpowder is, and cannons going off on ships to signal the time of the day. And I I do like the way that you paint these pictures of horrific events, but I I think that's an important part of the of the storytelling of this, and it's not just a um, series of events. You try to cover a, quite a lot of the the senses here, you've, you've done sound before and you've done visual and here you're talking about an, an, an emotional mm-hmm. impact. I think, yeah, it, it, that's
0: nice. Um, it's, uh, it's what I've tried to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, 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 to I, I think it's, it's actually really important for historians to consider sensory engagements with, with engagements with the landscape, engagement with country, um, and, and providing, trying to, trying to bring across a sense of that country. And the only way to do that is to be on country, really, and to understand it. I think a, a difference, um, you know, I could really get across, I tried to really get across the soundscape factor at Sydney. In Bathurst, it was much more a communications and um, distance. You know, you've got a much wider open space with these peaks of mountains, were, and, and, va- and, and rolling valleys, they were really key to understanding
1: what was going on at that time. And Tell, tell us that story, yeah, because you do, you do talk about two types of communication in this book, settler, colonial communication lines and the whole story of crossing the mountains is a part of that. But you also talk, let me actually just read you a quote here which I think is sort of sums up the other part of this. So you've got a quote here, the natives seem to be numerous. There are fires in many parts, not far from us. So that's a quote from one of the colonists. Then you write after that, unbeknown to, the, to Evans, Ganyang, fire smoke, was not just an indicator of camps, but also a communication signal. And so in this book, you have two, these two types of communication running through the th- running through the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it
0: it really um, really brought it home to me when I was out looking at um, uh, being taken around by um, a Wiradjuri man to s- locations around the west of Bathurst, and I had been thinking about Swallow Creek, but I had no idea. When he took me, to, I said, you know, let's do you know any communication type places, lookouts, peaks that might be. Relevant, And he said, yeah, I'll take you to this place. And then when we got there, I realized we were looking over the top down towards Swallow Creek. And the whole series of events that happened there uh, suddenly made sense. They wouldn't have made sense without me being on that peak and being shown that place, you know. Um, And I could realize that this was a communication point and I understood why this government stock station was attacked. And then when it was reoccupied, attacked the very next
1: day again by warriors, and you can just see. You can just see how it happened. And do you see that? Because in the Sydney Wars book, you also talk about Aboriginal pe- people taking the higher ground and using the landscape in the Blue Mountains as a strategic point to attack the settlers yeah, and, yeah. and wading. Yeah.
0: One of the things about the Blue Mountains, and it's kind of relevant to this, uh, to both books really, is um, I, I mean, I've done a lot of bushwalking in the Blue Mountains, right? heaps um, since I was a kid, you know, I led my first expedition <laughs> across the mountains at sixteen, right? Um, and I, I'd, I'd always thought there was this, this, this was not a wilderness, um, but it was regarded as a wilderness area. It was called wilderness, um, and I had a very, I suppose, um, I was struggling with, always struggling with that concept of it being a harsh, tough. Wilderness landscape, and researching the attacks and the raids and the and what happened in the Sydney Wars and in Bathurst, it's similar in the Capertee Valley. I've changed my thinking of the Blue Mountains to um, a harsh wilderness area, and that's part of that school history of crossing the mountains. It's a rugged place; only tough men can do it. It's actually a place of safety. It was it was a refuge, and it was part the. There's constant um, writing of, of um, colonists saying that we we can't get these people. They raid and attack our farms and then they run away into the into the wilderness, into the into the mountains, you know. So it it really flipped my thinking of the blue mountains as a as a refuge, as a place of safety rather than a, a harsh, rugged landscape, you know. Do
1: you want to tell me a little bit more of the Windradine story, how how that ends because it ends in martial law? Yeah. So after Windradine's
0: raids and and I just should I, I always like to contextualise this because so I think until recently windredine has been the focus of the story. Um, he was the leader. Actually, there was quite a few other leaders in different areas, and the amazing thing for me was finding that at the time Windjedine led these attacks, other warriors hundreds of kilometres away were doing the same thing. So it was obviously a communicated resistance, and every and the settlers say. All Aboriginal people who had been coming in and out of Bathurst left Bathurst at this point. So it's like, it's on. It's you know, it's total war. Um, so Winderdine should be seen in that context, but he is, you know, he's, he probably he led the most successful attacks in terms of raiding properties and, and casualties. But very soon you've got the settlers arming up and going out and forming basically massacre parties. There's no other word for them. Um and and doing give I suppose a counter offensive against the Wiradjuri attacks, and that's where Windjarradin withdraw, withdraws probably into the the Kapiti Valley around that area to the north. But at that time, the August the fourteenth in eighteen twenty four, the the stock the stock of the pastoralists are clamouring for military intervention for military intervention against Aboriginal people. Uh, the co- the government compromise, I suppose. The Attorney General says, like, what about we just declare martial law? That way, we can control the situation. We can maybe stop the the Europeans, the colonists, from going out and shooting left, right, and centre, and stop the raids from the warriors. So, martial laws declared in in August 1824, um, and there's there is no more conflict. There's a military, a strong military force is sent out classic tactic followed from the Sydney Wars all, all around the colonies the very, in, in the Empire, um, a show of strength and force. So, you know, a detachment, three detachments roam around that area, north, northwest, north and east of Bathurst. They don't come across any warriors. Um, you know, they know the terrain. But I think, and, it, and I think a lot of... Um, earlier historians have gone, well, that was, that was not successful, was it? You didn't get anyone. I think it, it actually was successful. It's a show of force um, and, and, you know, there's no other conflict after this, no real conflict. So they did their job. They showed that, you know, if you keep attacking colonists, we'll send in the military. So Winderdine then, you know, by December um, has to consider, I suppose you know, what What he could get out of this situation and um, arranges to come into Parramatta and to sue for peace. That's what they say, that he was looking for some kind of peace with, with the colonists. And so he marches nearly 200 people across the Blue Mountains to Parramatta to the annual feast for Aboriginal people that the government is holding and has a label, you know, he's... He's, he's marked up by probably Attorney General Sachs Bannister um, with a hat with a signed piece in it. And I, I, I seriously think that he was um, believing that this would make some kind of accord between the colonists and his people. But nothing nothing really changes. Um, the stock keep coming. The colonists keep taking land. There's no, there's no agreement. There's a feast Um, and things just roll on. Mm.
1: I wanted to ask you a little, I'm a geographer obviously. And so I'm very interested in map making and cartography and colonial cartography. And you write down the bottom of page 21, Evans was 36 year, years old and, in many ways, typical of free non convict colonists trying their luck in the expanding British Empire of the early 19th century, an empire producing great demand for surveyors and map makers. And this is a time, obviously, of land surveying and map making, and these are very crucial to the whole colonial project and central to land grant systems and the, the claiming of land. But I think and I've written about this, that you do something very interesting in both of your books where you rethink the map. So you don't put colonial maps in a book like this. Your maps are hand-drawn. They don't include colonial cartography, so we don't see survey marks. And they're topographical. They have features of the landscape, and if they do have markings, it's Indigenous and Aboriginal language groups that are roughly marked out to not be contained within any sort of boundaries. And there's a note on the map in this book that you actually worked with Aboriginal knowledge holders to produce the maps in this book. Could you talk a little bit about this, what I would call counter-cartography? Mm. Yeah, sure. It's, it's I, I guess initially it actually
0: stemmed from um, colonial imagery, which historians use constantly. They also use maps. Um, probably interchangeably. They don't really see much of a difference. But, you know, we've got a stock standard amount of 1820s images of the Central West at this period. Um, and I and, and this is what I did in Sydney as well. It's the same. We've got, you've got a stock standard amount of images. Yeah, there's some interesting ones that haven't been circulated as much, but um, we're recycling and reinforcing that colonial view of the landscape, which, as we know, particularly early on, is very skewed, you know, Um, and not just reinforcing that skewed image, we're denying, you know, any other kind of alternative image. So maybe perhaps I think I was thinking about when I said that I wasn't going to put any images into these books, any colonial images, it was trying to make a level playing field in some ways. And... So that then, I, you know, to actually help people um, understand the history, um, understand, perhaps to try and get through, um, and not understand an indigenous point of view, but to get some kind of empathy towards it, um, you need to sort of understand where things occur, and I guess, I guess, we all have a sense of the map as a key element in those things, wh- whatever kind of map it is. And so it was great to ask Aunty Niree to be able to do that and to kind of, you know, in, a blend, a, a, a map that we could understand with, with Wiradjuri symbols on the landscape.
1: At the launch of your book, you said, uh, and I know this, I only know this because I tweeted it at the time, that historians need to know country when they're writing a book like this. And I guess the way that you've done that is to spend a lot of time on country with Aboriginal knowledge holders and ask them to show you the country and to walk you up the top of mountains and, you know, explain things to you. Talk, Tell me a little bit about that because I think the maps come from there. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's
0: true. I mean, the maps also um, assist in... Making, I think, making, um, because essentially what they do is show conflict on the landscape and conflict over time and, and and I think that's a really valuable part of just doing the mapping is showing the extent of conflict. When you see it um, laid out on a map, you, you just get a sense, you know, holy crap, there was a lot of, lot of skirmishes, a lot of battles, a lot of massacres, all in this little area in this short period of time. Rather than the kind of traditional thinking like that the we've event, got.
1: The event by event. Yeah, you you need to see the geography of it. You can read about, oh, mm, this, mm, event mm, happened, mm. this event happened, this event happened, but until you see the geography yep. of it and over time, you don't really get a sense of the scale and the breadth mm. and the intent. The other thing your maps do, they show us where things happened, they show us when, but they also show us the intensity because each little event has its own intensity. It mm. might be two people, it might be 100 people, a hundred mm,
0: people. Mm. And thinking about that intensity in terms, you, you the, I guess the, the crossover between geography and history is partly the historians got to show the the, the scale of this. Um, you know, the, the, and look at those casualties that, on those locations, great, and and how and why they occurred. But you've got to talk about, you know, there was, let's say, um, 20 white people killed out of how many white people? You know, out of 200, that's, that's 10%. Um, you know, imagine 10% casualties out of um, Sydney right now. Yeah. That's a lot of people, you know. So the scale of conflict, you, that's, that's part of that, I, where I think geography and history have to mesh to really show that, yeah. Hmm.
1: You, to wrap up, you're sitting here with a yes shirt on, and I wanted to ask you about the importance, again, of historical texts and historians in the, the contemporary landscape of Australia. Um, we're trying to reckon again, you know, we've been through many rounds of trying to reckon with the horrors of Colonialism. How do you see a text like this, and what role do you think you know historians play in these kind of wider social processes?
0: Look, in in just in a, a really simplistic way, I think it's it's we, historians can play a lot of roles in different areas, um, but just for me, it's about being involved in that truth-telling process that has been kind of been being called for for years and years and years. It's not new. Um, but there's so there's such a long way to go. I mean, I, I always think, and this is what got me into writing about this in the first place. It was really Henry Reynolds wrote these amazing books about frontier wars, and said we need. I'm just scratching the surface. We need to do these local studies, and we will find out more and more and more. And we need to do them. And I think where perhaps where I've shifted from from Henry Reynolds. Uh, and, and and similar historians is that we need to do them in 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 cooperation, in consultation, in in partnership, in alliance with Aboriginal people on these stories because they're shared histories. And I think that for me, that part of truth telling that this current moment uh, is 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 part of. Um, I think that's a really important factor that that we have to carry on.
1: Stephen, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you.